The Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 18 to 19. This is the Word of God. Jesus said, therefore, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew, and it became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kingdom. Help us to understand it. What is it like? You've told us it's like a mustard seed that's planted, comes a tree, and birds nest in its branches. Help us to perceive what you are saying to us. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. What does this mean? This is a parable. Uh, It's in a series of parables about the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching on his way to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke about what the kingdom of God is. And and we know that, that really there was a lot of misunderstanding about the mission of Christ on his first coming. And so Jesus is teaching them, well, what is the kingdom of God like? And he gives this parable. It's like a mustard seed sowed in the garden, becomes a tree, birds of the air make nests in its branches. I mean, we can understand this parable on a number of levels. On on one level, there's just the the principle itself that God loves to manifest his strength in our weakness. He loves to take the insignificant things in the world and make them significant. And so on one level, that's what Jesus is saying. That is the principle of the kingdom is the small things, the weak things, the insignificant things, God uses them and makes them grand things, life-changing things, earth-shattering things. And so we can reflect on our own lives and say, okay, the kingdom principle is at work in our own lives. Anyone here ever feel insignificant? Anyone here ever wonder, well, what is my life all about? When I was a teenager, I thought my life might be totally different than it is. And and on one metric, I might conclude that my life is less significant than I had planned it to be. Maybe you've had that experience. If you're a little bit older, that's what happens. This is what often causes a midlife crisis. This is it. This is as good as it gets. This is what I've accomplished. This is as much glory as I can attain for myself in this world. We could also see this uh, on the corporate level in the church, right? Um, How significant is South Shore Bible Church in the world? How significant are we in the city of Barrie? Depends on the metric you use. From one metric, you might say that we're not very significant at all. Most people in the city of Barrie I would probably say even most Christians in the city of Barrie don't even know that we're gathered here this morning. How significant are we? And so there's great encouragement here in in Jesus' parable. He says, you know what? The kingdom of God is like that. You're using the wrong metric to, to measure significance. Take the small, the insignificant, the mustard seed things of this world. That's where God's kingdom is. That's what God is doing. And so we can reflect on ourselves. We can reflect on our church and say, wow, this is a grand thing. 
what God is doing. It's a topsy-turvy way of measuring success and significance. But there's more going on here. This is more than just a principle, and this is what bridges us into our text. This is our, the last sermon in our series on the rise of David. You see, the problem with just gleaning a principle from this parable is that we make ourselves the mustard seed and then we make ourselves the mustard tree. And who or what are the birds? Actually, in this parable, we are the birds. We are the birds. We're not the mustard seed and we're not the mustard tree. We're the birds. So what is the seed and what is the tree? Jesus is trying to help us to understand the kingdom. And let me give you the answer, then we're going to look at, look at it, and we'll revisit the answer with a little more depth at the end. David is the seed. Jesus is the tree. You see, David, as much as we celebrate him as his huge figure on the pages of history, up until a decade ago, most historians in, in the historical world or in the secular world doubted that David ever even existed. So insignificant was his historical footprint. And then at the uh, Tel Dan, they found uh, uh, an inscription, House of David, and so everyone's revising. Oh, he's not an Arthurian legend after all. He's not like King Arthur. There really was a David. But we in the church, or we from a Judeo-Christian heritage, don't often realize how insignificant David and his kingdom was from earthly standards. He wasn't the great empire uh, or emperor of, uh, say, a Greece or a Rome or even an Assyria or a Babylon. Uh, George Bush was buried last week. George Bush, from a worldly point of view, will have had a greater significance in history, just from a historical point of view, if you compare the four years that he was president to the 40 years that David was king. Because Israel was just a, a collection of tribes in uh, sort of a backwater place in the world. Now we know that David's significance is far greater than that that he, his kingdom has changed the world because we are using different metrics to evaluate significance. What Jesus says is, look, what God planted as a mustard seed, David, has become a great tree in the son of David, me, Jesus. And the birds, that is, people from all nations, will come and nest in my branches. So let's take a look at the rise of David. What we have been doing in this sermon series is looking to see how it is that God took a mustard seed and put it in the ground and let it just sort of be there, insignificant as it was, for generation after generation until it began to sprout. And then what we're going to talk about leading up to Christmas is just as the tree started to grow... That is, just about 400 years after God established the Davidic kingdom, God comes by and chops down the tree. That's for next week. What this sermon series has been is the planting of a mustard seed of insignificance, politically, historically, that would become the most significant kingdom of all time. It is the kingdom in which we will live forever. 
Let's take a look at it. In order to do this, we're going to review where we've been. That's, that's a major section of the sermon. So we're, we're past the introduction of the sermon. We're going to take a look at where we've been. Then we're going to just touch down in chapter 27, summarize chapters 29 to 31, and then have some closing remarks. So remember where this all started back in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, Saul, who was the first king of Israel, had been rejected by God. And God said to Samuel the prophet, I want you to go to Bethlehem. Yes, Bethlehem, that little, little place. I want you to go there. I want you to find Jesse, and I want you to find uh, his sons and anoint one of them to be king. So Samuel went to Bethlehem as God had commanded him. He gathered Jesse's family together. He went through seven sons. None of them were God's chosen king. He says, do you have another son? She says, yeah, but he's really insignificant. He's just post-puberty. He's tending the sheep. He's not the one you want. He's my youngest. Samuel says, go get him. We're not going to sit down until he's here. They went and got David. David came in looking all ruddy and handsome. And, and God said to Samuel, this is my anointed Arise and anoint him king over my people Israel. And that's what happened. And so in that moment, we see that David is absolutely God's choice. This is the definition of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Chapter 16, David did nothing. All he did was exist, and even that he couldn't take credit for. God brought him into being, set his heart upon him, chose him to be his king, the mustard seed planted that would bloom into the tree, which is Christ. Second phase of the story, Saul, the Holy Spirit is removed from Saul and put on David. Not in an indwelling sense, the way we think in New Covenant terms, but filled with the Holy Spirit to do powerful and mighty things. That is, that no one can oppose and succeed in opposing David. And in place of the Holy Spirit for Saul, God sent an evil spirit to torment him. And that's where we really see Saul drop off into madness. He needs a music therapist, so one of Saul's servants knows a guy who knows a guy in Bethlehem who's pretty good on the harp and the lyre, happens to be David. This is divine providence, to bring David into the royal house. And so David becomes Saul's music therapist when he's having a fit, and then he, he goes back to Bethlehem to tend Jesse's sheep. So he's bivocational, shepherd music therapist. And then Israel is gathered for battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines send forward a giant of a man almost 10 feet tall. So if you shoot basketball, Goliath was about that tall, just four inches short of the rim. He could dunk like this, you know, armpit above the rim. He was a tall man, and nobody wanted to go fight him. And that was Saul's job. Saul was the king. Saul was the giant. Saul was the champion in Israel. But Saul was afraid. And so everyone was afraid. And, and David, while he was delivering some supplies for, for his father, sees the giant says, I could take him. And then he hears that there's a reward. And David is the eighth of eight sons. He has little hope of advancement in his father's house. He's just been anointed king. He thinks, this is my moment to shine. And so he hears of the reward, but he collects witnesses. He goes around and he says, what will be done for the man who kills that Philistine? What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine? And group after group after group of men, he gets the answer. He'll get great riches. 
He'll get a royal princess. He'll get tax-free status for his father's house in Israel. And he will get conscription-free status for his father's house in Israel. And David says, that's a pretty good package. So David taking a Benjaminite weapon from Gibeah, Saul's traditional weaponry, a sling, goes out onto the battlefield, takes five stones, only needs one, winds up, lets it go. The rock lands in Goliath's forehead, falls down flat. David goes, cuts his head off. He's made a name for himself in Israel. Right after that, David cuts a covenant with the crown prince, Jonathan. And what we see there is Jonathan takes off his royal robe and all of his armor, that which is associated with the crown prince, and puts it on David so that everyone knows exactly what's going on. This is not a private covenant. The the crown prince has abdicated his place to succeed his father as king, and he has given that honor to David who has just killed the Philistine champion. Jonathan then, if you read through, cuts a series of covenants, always reminding David, don't forget about the covenant. Don't forget about the covenant. And what is that covenant? If you read through, it's not all there in chapter 18, but if you read through to the end of chapter, or, uh, 1 Samuel, you'll find out that Jonathan promised the crown. That is, you will be king after my father Saul. He also promised to protect David as David rose to the place of power. And what did David give Jonathan in exchange? I promise you, Jonathan... I will not kill you or your family. In fact, you will be second in command. I will make you my prime minister. You will be almost as powerful as me. You won't have the crown, but you will reign at my right hand. And Jonathan says, after you know, reading Genesis and seeing that the king's gonna come from Judah and not from Bedri, he says, okay, that sounds good to me. Something that we often don't think about when it comes to David and Jonathan is that D- Jonathan was 20 to 30 years older than David. Let me just, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's fascinating to show that this friendship, although there was probably some warmth in it, that they enjoyed one another's company, it was political. That They're separated by a generation. In Acts 13, 21, we're told that King Saul reigned for 40 years. In 2 Samuel 5, verse 4, we're told that David ascended to the throne when he was 30. So if David succeeded to the throne in Hebron over Judah right on the day when when Saul died, he had to have been born in the 10th year of Saul's reign. Now, in 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 and 2, we find out that in the third year of Saul's reign, Jonathan was already the commander over a garrison of soldiers. So he's probably about 20 years old. So add seven years, Jonathan's 27, 28, 29 years old, maybe as much as 30 when David is born. That's just fascinating, I think. It helps us to bring this this history into three dimensions for us. So David has got the crown prince on his side. He then moves to secure his next uh, piece of what it takes to rise to uh, achieve the crown, and he needs a royal princess. Ancient politics was a bit different than our politics today. You needed a woman connected to the throne in order to make a, a, a viable claim on the throne. And so... David marries Princess Michal, and she is the daughter of Saul and Ahinoam. Michal is the royal princess. This gives him his claim on the throne. Now, the dowry that Saul wanted was 100 Philistine foreskins. David doubled it. 
and collected 200. One thing I didn't mention when we preached through this was just think about this. As gross as it is to talk about 200 foreskins, just think that that represents 200 men. 200 boys. In order to rise in Israel, David took it upon himself to kill 200 men. Husbands that never made it home for supper. Young boys that didn't make it back from school. Sons and uncles and brothers that never made it back from the supermarket. It was an awful thing. The grace of God in David's life. We find out at the end of chapter 25 that after David goes into exile, or we, we actually we don't know when, temporally we're not sure, but we find out at the end of chapter 25 that Saul takes the royal princess and gives her, David's wife, to Pelti a different man. And that what Saul is doing, again, think about this through political lenses, is Saul is saying, this David has no claim on the throne. Now we find out right after that that David takes Ahinoam to be his wife. So we're not entirely sure, it's not absolutely sure, but there's only one other Ahinoam in the Bible, and that's the wife of Saul. So it seems like Saul takes David's wife and Saul t uh, David takes Saul's wife to maintain his claim on the throne. We're also told that David sought refuge with Samuel in Ramah. There he's protected by the Holy Spirit, but he's not content to stay there. He doesn't want to just wait at this point for Saul to die. He wants to get to the throne a little bit quicker. So he tries to execute what I would call his plan A. What is his plan A? Conspiracy and treason with the priests at Nob. We know that David took the sword of Goliath after he had killed Goliath and stashed it under his tent. The next time we hear about the, the sword of Goliath is when he goes to retrieve it from Ahimelech, the, the, the chief priest at Nob from the tabernacle. And, and what we talked about there was sometime between the killing of Goliath and David fleeing to Nob, he had entered into some kind of a treasonous conspiracy with Ahimelech and the priest at Nob. The idea was that David might rally some troops, rendezvous at Nob, and then effect a coup d'etat, that is, take the kingdom by force. That fails. It gets a little bit too dangerous for David before he's able to do that, and so plan B. Plan B is to hide out in the wilderness to seek opportunities to undermine Saul from exile. This is his public relations from the wilderness. It's a propaganda war for the soul of Israel. And in these chapters, 24 through 26, we see that David restrains himself from killing Saul. Whereas plan A, I might suggest to you, included the death of Saul by the hand of David. That didn't work. So we transitioned to plan B. And David says, well, let's not kill Saul, but let's undermine him. David wins this public relations war. As Saul is hunting for his life, David goes and cuts off the hem of his robe and says, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. As 
as Saul lay sleeping in the wilderness trying to kill David, he goes, he steals his spear, steals his water jug. He says, this is a symbol of your royal power, O king, and I've got it. This is a symbol of your life. You're in the wilderness, you need water, and I've got it. And in doing this, David doesn't kill Saul, but he undermines him. says, why are you hunting me? I've done nothing wrong. And in so doing... Saul says, you're right, you're righteous, you're innocent, and you will be king after me. That's everything that David needs. He also, while he is out in the wilderness, he picks a fight with the most powerful man in the tribe of Judah. Again, we often don't think about this, but in order for David to rise in Israel, he has to first rise in the tribe of Judah. Think about it uh, similarly to the primaries in the United States. In order to become president, you first have to win the party. And so there's this whole round of primaries. Who's going to be the most powerful person in the party, either the Democrats or the Republicans? Well, it was sort of the same for David. He had to be, establish himself from this sort of nobody family in Bethlehem to become a powerful man in the tribe of Benjamin. So he picks a fight with a Calebite, that's the ruling family in Judah, the most wealthy man, the most powerful man by the name of Nabal. And he wants to kill him, but Abigail... Uh, encourages him not to kill him. Nabal eventually dies. David takes Abigail to be his wife, making a claim on the, Nabal's position as the most powerful man in Judah. So now, this is, this is where we left off last week. David has set himself up. He secured a public confession before his men and before the troops, the army of Saul's men, that Saul has said David is innocent, David will be king after him. He's, he's overthrown, so to speak, Nabal, the most powerful man in Judah. He's taken the wife of the king of Israel. He's taken the wife of the most powerful man in Judah. Now, there's nothing left to do but wait. And that's what he does. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27. David having secured everything that he needed to rise to the throne, says it's time to get out of Israel. First Samuel 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So we get here an inner monologue. David thought to himself, or David said to himself, or David said in his heart. It, what, what we're getting here is very rare. It's, this is actually what David is thinking. Oftentimes when David speaks, we have to wonder, is it the truth? Is he lying? Is, is this political? But what the narrator is saying here is this is actually what's going through David's mind. This is what he said in his heart. He says, I've secured everything that I could get. If I stick around, the only thing I have to gain is death at the hands of Saul. I've got nothing left to do but wait. So I better get out of here. And so he does. And so he leaves. And we also find out that Saul, seeing that David is now outside of his territory, says, 
Finally, David is gone. I'm going to stop worrying about him. Now, David goes to the king of Gath, Achish. And, and it looks like there, there's a good, good relationship there. David presents himself as an enemy of the king of Israel. And in the ancient world, the, or even today, I guess, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they have this, Achish and David have the same enemy, King Saul. And so they form a, a, a subtle alliance in Philistia, in Gath. But David says, I don't really like being this close to you. Could you just give me a little village outside of the royal city? And so we're told in verses 5 to 7 that Achish gives him Ziklag. Take a look at verses 5 to 7. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of your country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Why would David want to be outside of Gath? Why would David not want to be in the same city as the king? Why would he want to be out in some little obscure town out of view, out of the way? Well, the answer comes to us in verses 8 and 9. David is still scheming. David had nothing left to do in Israel. He had done everything political that he knew to do in order to position himself to rise to the throne in Israel. But now that he's outside of Israel, he begins to plot. He begins to scheme again. He begins to think, what do I need to do to secure my throne? He says, well, I can't do it if I'm under the gaze of the king of the Philistines. I need to be out on my own where nobody can see me, where I have a, a, a certain amount of privacy. So take a look at verses 8 and 9. This is why David did not want to be in the royal city of Gath, of the Philistines. He wanted to be out on his own. Verses 8 and 9. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the, Ger, Ger, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkey, the camels, and the garments, and then come back to Achish. David did not want to be in Gath because he didn't want the king to know what he was doing. What was he doing? He was going out to plunder and to kill why would David raid neighboring villages? Think politically. He's the future king of Israel. He's outside of Israel. He's weakening his future enemies, his future opponents politically. And so on the one hand, this is strategy. He knows he's going to become king. How much better for him to become king when his, the neighboring nations have been weakened? So he takes whatever time he's got. We find out it's about a year and four months. And in that time, he's going to weaken his foreign opponents as much as possible. And so he goes out and he kills as many people, as many foreigners from an Israelite point of view as he can. 
And you'll notice, though, that this is very below the belt. He, he's not just uh, declaring war as kings do against the armies of foreign nations. That, that's the way to fight wars. That's the way to strengthen your position. He's going out as a marauder, a raider, and he's, he's not just killing the men. He's killing the women and the children, too. And he's burning these villages to the ground. And he's taking all of their wealth and stockpiling it for himself. What about the risk? What if Achish found out? Well, then he's in big trouble. Then he's an enemy in Israel and he's an enemy in Philistia. That's what verses 10 to 12 are all about. When Achish asked, where, where have you made a raid today? Because obviously Achish could see he's, he's gaining all of this wealth, all of this livestock. Where are you getting all this stuff? David would say, um, against the Negev of Judah. Or he would say, against the Negev of the Jehiramelites. Or against the Negev of the Canaanites. In other words, against Israel. I'm raiding Israel. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive. Why? For fear that they might bring news to Gath. Thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, just like everyone does all the time. David lied to Achish Achish bought it, swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker, and says, oh, David's a good man. He's making himself a stench in the nostrils of his own people. He's made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Again, this is very revealing. What's the function here? This, again, just further characterizes David for us. If, if we're unwilling to see what we've been looking at the last couple of months about David, how David would present himself one way and then do something very different, fooling everybody. Here, much like chapter 25, we get to see David. Uh, the narrator pulls back the curtain a little bit to say, look, this guy is always lying and scheming. He's always building up his nest at the expense of others, and everyone always thinks he's a darling. Everyone always thinks he's great and wonderful and righteous. Achish did church has for years. But David is filled with all kinds of sultry and sundry activity, killing men and women and children so that when he becomes king in Israel, their position is weakened so that his personal wealth is greater. There's two more crucial events I'm just going to touch on in 1 Samuel. In chapter 29, Saul and Israel go to war against Achish and the Philistines. In chapter 28, this is foretold. Saul knows that he's about to go to war against the Philistines. So uh, God has stopped speaking to him. So he goes to a necromancer, to a witch. And he conjures up the soul of Samuel. Oh, <laughs> that's a whole nother sermon. What, what is that all about? But Samuel comes up from Sheol and prophesies. and says, this time tomorrow you're going to be with me in Sheol. This is it. You're done. But in chapter 29, we see that, that war start. Now, David is in a bind in chapter 29 because he, 
he's presented himself as an enemy of Israel to Achish. So Achish says, well, put your money where your mouth is and come and do battle with me. If you've been raiding your people for a year and four months, what's the difference? Come into battle with me. So David's like, well, okay. And he's kind of stuck. But then some of the lords, the elders in Philistia say, I don't think, oh king, this is a good idea. Because we don't know, this might be the way David wants to win back favor in his own land. And what better way for him and his 600 uh, soldiers to turn on us in the heart of battle and to effect this great victory for Israel. And then he can go back to his people and say, look what I've done. I defeated the Philistines for you. And so he said, I don't think it's a good idea that David goes into battle with us. This is brilliantly providential for David. Gets him out of a bind. So you see the hand of God here because David was in a tough spot. These men, though their logic is wrong, they, they affect a great thing for David so that David doesn't have to go to war against his own people. And so King Achish says, David, I want you to come to war with me. I trust you. I love you. You've just been just so good to me. Um, but you better sit this one out. So David says, fine, okay, fine. So he, he makes his way back to Ziklag, which is his town. And we find out in chapter 30, while Saul is fighting the Philistines, and this is the battle where Saul's going to die, David goes back to Ziklag and finds it burnt down. And all of his family, the, the women and children of his soldiers are gone. And all of their, their wealth and property is gone. We find out later in chapter 30 that it's the Amalekites that had done this. Retribution for what David had been doing to them. So David goes and fights against the Amalekites and wins back the families of uh, his own family and, and the families of his soldiers and all of their possessions. While that war is going on over there between David and the Amalekites, Saul is fighting Achish and the Philistines over here. Now this is really important. Now, I've wrestled with this long and hard. Why is Ziklag and all of that in the Bible other than the fact that it happened? Well, this is really important because God gives David a reason to be predisposed while Saul is getting killed over here. It's, it's an absolute true and wonderful and excellent alibi for David. Uh, where were you on the day that Saul was killed? I was over here rescuing my wife from the Amalekites. Wives, sorry. David had many wives. I was rescuing my family against the Amalekites. I had nothing to do with the death of the Lord's anointed. And that's why it's in the Bible to tell us that David had nothing to do with the death of Saul. But in chapter 31, Saul dies. The other thing that we learn about David over here when he defeats the Amalekites, he wings back all of his spoil. He, he also takes more from the Amalekites. When he hears that Saul has died, do you know what he does with all of his wealth that he had been accumulating? He sends it to the most powerful families in Judah. It's political. So he made the good use of his time. While once the king dies, he sends presents and gifts to the most powerful people who can open doors for him to ascend to the throne. And so the rise of David in 1 Samuel, the planting of the mustard seed of God's kingdom, 
ends with these words in chapter 31. And the Philistines, verse 2, overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor-bearer saw, saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. That verse is important because those are all the men that would have had the greatest claim on the throne. Oftentimes, armor-bearers would ascend and replace their king. Verse 7, When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. And the chapter ends with a tribute to Saul. Saul had saved the men of Jabesh-Gilead from Nahash the Ammonite way back in chapter 12, 13, somewhere in there, 11 or 12. So the men of Jabesh-Gilead come, and they find Saul. Interesting, the Philistines had cut off his head, just like Goliath. They take his body off. They, they, they had been put up on city gates. The men of Jabesh-Gilead take his body, and they give him a proper burial. Now, the rise of the kingdom of God is not maybe what we would want it to be. It's filled with political intrigue, murder, immorality, sin, a lot of politics, conniving. And so when you think about God establishing his kingdom, we may say to God, that's not how we want you to establish your kingdom. But that's how God established a kingdom. What we've just gone through this morning, what we've gone through these last several months, is God planting the kingdom of God. The mustard seed that would grow into a great tree and all the birds would come and nest in its branches. One thing I love, and I hope this has come out over the last many months, is the grace required to get us from David to Jesus. The grace required not to sanction, not to say it's okay what David has done. It's not to say that, that David's sin is acceptable, that, that we ought to emulate him in any way. But the grace of God required to take this man and to establish through him and his lineage an everlasting dynasty. That takes grace. And so what we see, when God decided to plant his kingdom in the ground as a mustard seed, he says, I'm going to plant it with a lot of grace. And then as we look at the lives of David's sons, Solomon and Rehoboam, and all of the kings that, that follow from David, right up to Jehoiachin, who goes into exile in Babylon in 590 B.C., God waters this kingdom with grace after grace after grace. All of these men, total corrupt sinners who do awful things 
And yet God protects Jerusalem, the holy city, and protects them until he's had enough. And then in 586 B.C., he brings an axe to this tree that he had watered, and he chops it down. But then we're told that from the stump of this tree, there's a shoot that comes up. He doesn't uproot the tree. The, the mustard seed that he planted in the ground bore roots in the ground. It became a tree. God watered it all the way up until the time that he sent the Babylonians to chop it down. And though he chopped down the tree, he didn't uproot it. But we're told in Isaiah 6, after he chopped the tree down, he set the stump on fire. And then after the fire had gone out, he set fire again. And for 700 years, he set that stump on fire. Until it looked like there was no stump left. But would you know it, on Christmas, a little shoot comes out of that chopped down, burnt up stump. A little shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? The father of David. A little shoot, continuity with the mustard seed planted in 1000 B.C. And that shoot begins to grow and it grew up before us into a mighty tree. And so what do we do? We chop it down. Crucifixion. What does God do? He raises it up. See, what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks as we come to Christmas is the continuity, the, the Christmas story, not, not from the angle that we often think of the Christmas story. For us, and this is absolutely good and right and wonderful, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is bad, but for this Christmas, we're going to look at a different perspective on Christmas. But the, traditionally, what Christians do is we say, God became a man to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, to carry our sins, die in our place, rise again, Paying the penalty for our sins, we're forgiven. That's the gospel. That's true. But where's David in that? You see, if that's all we know about Christmas, if that's all that Christmas is, then the Old Testament is just unnecessary but interesting pre-story. And the story really starts at the incarnation when God became a man. What I want us to focus on this Christmas is that God planted the kingdom of God 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. He planted a mustard seed. Now in 586, he, he cut it down, and then he continually burned that stump until Jesus was born. But if you were a first century Jew anticipating Christmas... What you're anticipating is not the incarnation of God to carry your sins to the cross. What you're anticipating is the return of the Davidic king. Uh, we need a king. And, and what Christmas also is, in addition to God becoming a man, it's the son of David being born to reestablish the kingdom that had been chopped down and burned down. And to bring to fruition that which never came to fruition in the line of the Davidic kings until Jesus. That is Psalm 2, which says that the king in Jerusalem is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
that, that the king of the Jews is the king of the nations. Show me where that ever came true in the Old Testament. Never. The closest we get to that is Solomon, but he doesn't even come close to being the king of all the kings. So what Jesus does is fulfills the promises given to Israel and to David. That is an eternal dynastic house that will put a king on the throne of Israel and reign over the whole world forever. And that's the narrative that we want to see. How great is God to plant a seed, water the seed, chop down the tree, burn the tree, and then bring forth the tree. And this is where we fit in. We're not the mustard seed. We are not the tree. We are the birds that come because of Christmas and nest in the branches of the king. The first century Christians were looking for a lion and they got a lamb. We keep our eyes fixed on the lamb but forget that he is a lion. The very thing that the apostles looked for, we have totally forgotten that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and David is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's pray. God, help us to see Christmas uh, from a wider lens. It is about you becoming one of us to do what we couldn't do and to die in our place. And it is you coming to reestablish the Davidic kingdom because David's kingdom is the kingdom of God. I pray for us, Lord. Help us to see Christmas as the reestablishment of the Davidic monarchy. And so we look forward, Lord, to the return of our king when he will set up a real kingdom, not an ethereal kingdom, not what we would call a spiritual kingdom, but a brick and mortar, flesh and blood, spiritual kingdom that will endure forever. And we in it, birds in his branches. Amen.